You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Welcome to Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. With your host, Andrew Gerza. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item so you get one free item for penis havers one free item for vulva havers one free item for couples and then you also get six free movies from the adameve.com website you can get your favorite porn or an educational film i love free movies they're so awesome this is such a great deal and then on top of that you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to adameve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in darkpod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. And you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store at 50% off. And then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content warning. The language, 
Content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on all things disability. My name is Andrew Gerza. I'm your disabled Dick Smith, your number one queer cripple and everything in between. So let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this show started. First of all, I'm excited to say that we are nearing our 200th show. We are on episode 197 today of our official episodes, which is, I can't even believe this show made 200. That's amazing. Thank you so much for listening, for sending me your feedback, for saying you want to be a guest. Thank you so, so much. It means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to tell me what the show means to you, send me a voice clip to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com and just record maybe 20, 30 seconds about why the show is important to you. And I'd love to play it in an upcoming episode as part of the break so we can uh, just hear why Disability After Dark has been important for you these last almost four years. Holy wow. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, it means a lot. For all of you who've listened, who've pledged, who've guested, it's really important to me that this show is a community for you to learn about disability, to talk about disability, to talk about sex and disability, and to really expand your knowledge about what it means to be disabled and how being disabled really feels. And that's what I, 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 hope, I hope I've done that, and I hope I continue to do that as the show goes on. So thank you, thank you, everybody. But enough about that. Let's get on to the show today. I'm really, really excited about this one. And what I love about this one is that sometimes when I have a guest on, I really, I make sure there's questions, I lay it all out, and it's very quasi-professional. But sometimes I sit down with a guest and I just want to have a chat. And this is somebody that I've been following from Twitter for about for about three years now, we've been we've been friends. Two and a half, three years, we've been like Twitter friends, and we've been following each other. And they are someone that I just wanted to sit down and have a chat with, and I've been dying to have on the show for a long time because I wanted to talk with them about their experience with sex and disability, and 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 sex and illness through a partner of theirs. So let me tell you all about who my guest is today. But it's one that you won't want to miss. In the interview today, I sit down with my good friend, Kimberly Aquaviva, who is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Nursing. And we have a really really fun and intimate and important chat about her late wife, Kathy Brandt, who passed away in 2019 of ovarian cancer. And I... I wanted to sit down with Kim because I've, I've been following Kim for a couple of years now. We're kind of friends. And I wanted to sit down with her to discuss her relationship with her late wife and how taking care of somebody who was sick may have changed their idea of intimacy and sex and intimacy with the partner who was nearing the end of life. So that's really what we talk about during this interview. But also we talk about what it was like for her to have to navigate care, some of Kim's own ableism that she had to confront around care, and we just have a laugh too. It was a really important interview because I don't think we talk about 
what happens when you become a caregiver to a partner who's sick or ill or, or who becomes disabled and what that means for you. And we get to do that here with Kim. And it was a really funny, like, relaxed, honest, real interview about what it means to take care of somebody. And I, I absolutely adore this interview. It's one of my most favorites that I've ever done on this show. And I am so excited to bring it to you. I love that we talk about palliative care. I love that we talk about disability. I love that we talk about Kim's experience being a caregiver. There's so much to unpack here and both Kim and I were thrilled to do it and I'm more than thrilled to bring it to you. So without further ado and no more rambling, here's my interview with my good friend Kim Aquaviva right now on episode 197 of Disability After Dark. Kimberly Aquaviva, hello. Hello, Andrew. Welcome. Thanks for having me to your show. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on. We've been planning this collaboration for, oh, feels like a very long time. I looked back in the emails this morning. We've actually been talking about maybe doing this for like three years. Yeah, a long, long time. A very, very long time. And the timing now is perfect. The, ti- <laughs> the timing is perfect, which we'll get into in just a minute. <laughs> But before we get into why it's great to have you here, um, can you, I'm just so happy to have you here, but can you introduce kind of yourself to the Disability After Dark audience and who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So as you said my name already, it's Kim Aquaviva, and I am a professor at the University of Virginia School of Nursing. Uh, I do research around LGBTQ inclusive healthcare, specifically uh, care at the end of life. I am an ASEC certified sexuality educator. And my PhD is in human sexuality from the University of Pennsylvania. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, gosh, I, I love chatting with you on, I've had you on my podcast, I think three times. You're the only guest that I've had come back over and over and over again. I feel like we should do that. You know what? I was just in the hospital, which we just talked about off the air. We should do another episode. We need to do it, yeah. <laughs> it's always fun to talk with you. So it's- I'm excited to be here today. Um, and just really excited to answer your questions. I'm just excited. I don't know. I can't remember how we, I think, was it Twitter how we connected? Did you I think, like? I think yeah. so. I think it was through Twitter. Um, and then you came on the podcast and it was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. And it was so much fun. And uh, so you've been on my podcast three times. And then recently you were interviewed by my son for a school paper for one of his communications classes at Emerson College. And uh, he loved talking to you. He was like, Andrew's the coolest guy ever. It so, was that, yeah. that was so I fun. Really liked you. <laughs> and that was the first time we, because you and I have been talking like through the internet and through the podcast, yeah. we never actually looked at each other and yeah. said hello. So that when I got interviewed by your son, Gray, it was nice yeah. to like look at you. And I didn't expect you to be there. So when I heard your voice, I was like, oh, Kim, wow, <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, we were sitting across from the breakfast room table together. He was working on his computer. I was working on mine. And I was like, I should pop around on the other side of the table and say hi to Andrew. So, yeah, um, so happy you did. Yeah, it was nice to get to see you. Um, and yeah, and that's why I love Twitter. Like, I love Twitter because it brings half of the interviews that I do on the show are from people just being like, I follow you on social media. That's me. It's like, it's so, I love that it's brought the discussions of disability into the mainstream and brought people onto the show who I, I would never have considered when I started doing the show four years ago that I would have you on the show. Or like, yeah. I would never have thought about it because 
I didn't know you. And so thank God for like social media because it brought people together. Yeah. Twitter is kind of an amazing space. I, you know, I hear people talk about what a cesspool Twitter is and they're like, ah, Twitter's awful. But I've found it to be a really nice community of people um, and a nice space to interact with people that I wouldn't normally get a chance to. Yeah, totally. I I mean, I I agree with the, the Twitter can be really toxic if you decide to go down certain avenues of it. But if you stick to, like I stay in like disability positivity lanes and Mm -hmm. I try to make it something where conversations can happen. And I've been, it's been a place that I haven't always enjoyed, but it's, I think it's important for the disability community, but that's, we're not here to talk about Twitter today. We're (laughs) here to talk about you. Um, So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on and one of the reasons why you're finally on the show, which you alluded to a a second ago (laughs) is because your late wife, late partner, Kathy, uh, who, as far as I can remember, you told me once that she was a fan of what I was doing. Yeah, she really liked what you were doing. She was just super repressed New Englander. Um, like, super, I mean, really, one of those folks that was mortified at how open I am talking about sex and sexuality. So when the opportunity came up to be on your show, when she was alive, she laughed and she was like, oh my God, could you just wait until I'm dead? Like, can you, if, if you wait until I'm dead, I'm totally okay with it. Um, and so I was like, absolutely. So yeah, and I and it was so funny when I got that email. I said, "Hey, I want you to be on my show." And you wrote back, "You're like, I would love to." Here's the thing, though: Kathy has asked that that, that you wait till she's dead, and I was like, "Oh, I know." And she was she wasn't upset at all about the idea of the interview. She loved the idea of the interview. She just didn't want to be alive in the world knowing that that information was in the world because <laughs> she's so private. But she was fine with it after she dies. Awesome. So, Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Kathy and tell us a little bit about your relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So Kathy and I were together about 18 years when she died. Uh, We had met when we were both working at a large hospice down in Florida. I was director of research. She was director of outreach. And uh, she did not like me at all in the beginning. Not at all. Um, She thought it was an enormous pest and she put duct because I was constantly bothering her saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Because when, my, um, when I got that job, it was a brand new job and no one had ever had that job before. So she was one of the people who helped conceptualize what the job looked like. And I didn't really have a job description. So I kept asking her for guidance about like, is it okay if I do this or that? And she found me terribly obnoxious. And um, she was pretty closeted even though, um, so she was dating someone else who worked at the hospice and people kind of sort of knew she was a lesbian, but she was not out to her family. Um, and I was super out. I was going through a breakup um, and we ended up falling in love. She broke up with her girlfriend. Um, I had just adopted Grayson like three months earlier. And, wow. uh, and she said, you know, I don't want kids. Um, when we were talking about dating, she said, I don't want children. I don't think it would be a good parent. So I was like, okay, but if we date, like I have a child and she ended up being an amazing mom and loved being a parent. Um, but in the beginning she thought, okay, she'll just date me, but like not, if it's serious, she wouldn't be a parent. So that was kind of funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, cause I mean, all the pictures that we, we, that I saw of you on social media was like, 
you and her were going to yeah. be moms and it just was it just yeah. fit so she was funny. an amazing mom like yeah yeah so it's just funny that she that like the story is that she didn't want it she didn't even think she could be a mom she thought she'd be a bad parent she really didn't think she would be a good mom um you know i don't think she felt like she had great role models um and she really didn't think she she could be a good parent but she was she was an amazing mom uh we started dating and about i want to say three weeks after we started dating she stopped drinking and when we started dating i didn't even know that she had a drinking problem which is kind of embarrassing to even admit because we'd been dating for three weeks but she was a secret like day drinker um and would drink a lot and so i hadn't realized it and three weeks into our relationship uh, one morning we were, I think it was like a Saturday and Grayson was a toddler. Grayson reached out to grab a glass of water and Kathy said, no, 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 don't, don't touch that. That's a grown up drink. And I was like, what, what grown up drink would you have at like eight o'clock in the morning? And I was like, oh shit. She was oh, drinking no. vodka in the mornings, um, every single day. And so she, it scared her. And she was like, I think I have a drinking problem and I need to quit. And so, um, so she got sober like three weeks into our relationship. And she totally didn't even think that she would be, that's, that's, first of all, that's adorable. It was so sweet. She was amazing. And there was never any disagreement or, you know, I wasn't pressuring her to quit. I hadn't even realized she was drinking. Um, and she was like, I need to get, I need to get sober. Um, this isn't, this isn't healthy. And so she stayed sober and did not drink alcohol the whole time we were together. So, wow. And, yeah. Wow. Proud of her. Um, she, and from what I remember of you telling me about her, she was really funny, like really like hilarious. Wit, really super hilarious, cranky, like notorious, cranky, cranky. Um, you know, she was a boss. Um, and so she would have employees and she was just kind of, um, just go, go, go kind of energetic, but also not, not very patient. So a little bit, a little bit of a cranky pants, um, which is, was kind of her shtick. I mean, she was very much like a serious person, but also funny. So because she could kind of seem bristly, people didn't expect her to be funny, but she was pretty hilarious. The funniest people are also the bristliest usually. Usually. Absolutely. Yeah. And so she was, um, in many ways, like my exact opposite, which made things really good. Um, the funny thing was, you know, she very much identified as a butch lesbian and it was kind of fun. And I, and I identify as a femme lesbian, but she was not into like doing any of the like repair stuff, <laughs> like fixing stuff around the house or fixing cars or like doing yard work. She was very much like she liked to cook. And so a lot of times people would meet us and assume that she was like the handy one and I was like the domestic one, but um, she was amazing with cooking and, and things like that. And I did all of the other kinds of stuff. So I mean, and yeah, in the photos that I saw of the two of you, like that stereotype definitely looked like it played out. Super that, well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, she, she looked super butch and, um, but it was I think part of what made her so much fun also was for her being butch. It wasn't at all about what, you know, whether she fit any kind of gender stereotype around what a butch woman would do. Like she didn't care that she literally knew nothing about like fixing things. Not at all. Like anything needed to be assembled or repaired. That was like my lane. Um, And I was not allowed in the kitchen. 
like on holidays or things because I was just a distraction. I was just not, not a good cook. In the way. I was just in the way. And she would not hesitate to be like, you need to leave the kitchen. Like, this is not, this is not helpful. So we got along really well um, because I tend to be really direct and so did she. And so it was, it was a good match. That's great. Can you kind of guide us through like her getting sick and kind of what yeah. that was like for you? Yeah. So Kathy and I had both been doing hospice and palliative care work for, you know, eons and eons. Um, and I had written a book about LGBTQ inclusive hospice and palliative care. I was just going to ask you about the book because I was looking at your, at your bio and I was like, I want to read that. How do I get a copy? So I can send you a copy. I'll send you I a copy. I would love one. I'd be happy to. Um, so I had written a book about this and she and I both knew a lot about hospice and palliative care because we've been in this field for a while. So um kind of the beginning of things was when we drove Grayson up to college his freshman year. So we drove Grayson up to, you know, to Emerson College in Boston. And when we got to Rhode Island to my in-laws house, um, Kathy was really sick. Like all of a sudden she was laying on the sofa, did not feel good. And she'd been fine the whole ride there. And she's laying on the sofa and didn't want to go out to dinner with folks. And, um, she was kind of a notorious drama queen when it came to like the mi- the most minor of illnesses, it, like big time. Because when she was little, she had celiac and she got a lot of attention, positive attention for being sick. And so yeah. she recognized like her kind of go-to behavior is kind of being whiny and bratty when she's sick and then people take care of her. So, um, so she was like laying on the sofa and miserable. And I was like, oh. So we all went out to dinner and when we came home, she had passed out and she had knocked her um, chin on a bathroom counter and she was really sick. And I had said earlier, you know, if you're sick, we should take you to urgent care. And she was like, no, no, no. So when she had passed out, I was like, you know, I'm concerned we should take you to urgent care. She's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. So I was like, oh, this is not good. So, um, so I ran out to a 24 hour CVS and I got, uh, a, a urinary, like a bladder infection, UTI test because years ago, Kathy had passed out in an airport and had had a UTI. So I was like, maybe she has a UTI. So I go to CVS, I get the test and it's positive. So I said to her, okay, in the morning, we're going to take you to urgent care. We'll get you on IV antibiotics. Things are great. So took her to urgent care. They were like, yes, it looks like you have a kidney infection um, on top of it and take these antibiotics. You should be fine. The whole way from Rhode Island to Boston to take Grace into school, she couldn't stop vomiting. Super sick. Um, And I, this is not my finest moment. I was really annoyed. I was like, we're moving our kid into, into college. This is like, we have to unpack this whole car full of crap. Um, and I really thought, come on, suck it up. Because I tended to be, I've always tended to be like, I'll minimize physical stuff. So I had a mastectomy. I had it as day surgery. Two hours after surgery, I went home. I insisted, wow. like, I'm going home, let me go. And I went home and Holy I was like, Everyone really? the fuck for me. yeah. You yeah. went home. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no kidding. So That's badass. But good and bad, right? It's not good common sense. So, but it meant I had zero patience when my own wife was legitimately ill and was like, not like, you know, just jumping in and powering through. So, um, so that whole, there were like three days of moving Gray into school and getting settled into Boston. She couldn't leave the hotel room. She couldn't stop vomiting. She was so sick. So we, um, 
you know, drove back to DC. She never went in Grayson's dorm room or anything because she really couldn't get up and move. And that's when I knew she was genuinely ill. So we um, got back to DC. She had some tests run. They said, you know what? It's a kidney infection. Just take antibiotics. So fast forward. So that's in August of 2018. So fast forward January of 2019, she was getting up out of bed and fainted and um, passed out and then came conscious again, but then passed out again. It was like, this is not good. We need to get this checked out. So she went to her doctor, they did blood work, blah, blah, blah. So the doctor calls with the results and said, you need to go to the emergency room. I think you have something wrong with your gallbladder based on your blood work. So, um, so Kathy and I go to the ER um, because they wanted her to have a CAT scan. It was a snow day. So it was a day like tons of snow and um, there was talk of schools closing early. And um, so anyway, so we waited in the ER for a while. She was taken back. Her nurse was a nurse that I educated at GW. So I was really excited. Oh, wow. She was a nurse I knew. Yeah. Um, and felt safe. yeah, I felt safe. And, um, you know, she had a hallway bed, so they were really overcrowded. So she didn't have a private space. She was, you know, like hall yeah. bed six or whatever. Um, and the day kind of dragged on. And as time was inching closer to when it looked like streets might be closing because of snow, Kathy said, why don't you go home, go home, um, walk the dogs. And um, if I need you, you can come back. And I was like, okay, because we really thought it was gallbladder. So then um, as it was on my way home, she called and then handed the phone to the, a physician assistant who said, okay, so we have the CAT scan results and here's what we see. Um, and they were clear that there was a really, really large mass and they couldn't visualize either ovary and um, it looked like ovarian cancer. And the reason why they were confident saying cancer and not, oh, we don't know what it is, is because she had had a partial hysterectomy years before. She didn't have a uterus, so it could not be uterine fibroids. So they were pretty clear also because she had fluid throughout her abdomen, around her heart and other masses. Um, so we found out that day, and then based on the CAT scan results, um, I knew a bit about ovarian cancer staging. So because she already had fluid everywhere and spots and other organs, we knew that it was at least stage three. So that night, uh, Kathy and I told Grayson and then she oh, called the palliative, which is a lot like, and we, but we wanted to tell him everything we knew right away. No, of course. But I can, I can imagine for you, like you, your instruction was to go home, walk the dogs. I can yeah. imagine walking the dogs. And getting that phone call because oh, you've been told horrible. by all the physicians that okay, yeah. it's a kidney infection, yeah, gallbladder. It's yeah, so we definitely a, did not expect it. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I would have dropped the phone and been like, "What the yeah. fuck do I do now?" It was absolutely unexpected. But I will say the way that the physician and physician assistant handled it, it was perfect because they didn't do any of the. Um, you know, we have to wait and see. We don't know what it is. They actually um, gave Kathy a printout of what the CAT scan results were right then. Um, there was, they brought in one person, which was kind of funny. Um, they brought in an OBGYN person as a consult while Kathy was waiting to check out. And that doctor also did like a phone a conference call um, with me on the line. And the funny thing was, she was like, you know, all we know is it's a mass. We just know it's a mass. And so I said, 
Um, oh, she started by saying to Kathy something like, um, what's your understanding of what, what's going on with you? And Kathy said, I have ovarian cancer. And the woman said, well, no, no. All we can say is it's a mass. And so Kathy was like, is there something that could be other than cancer, um, given that I don't have a uterus? And she said, not really, but we call it a mass until... The, she goes, technically, until there's a biopsy performed, we don't say something's cancer. And so I said, you know, if my wife wants to call it cancer because she knows it's cancer, let's go ahead and let her call it cancer because we know it's cancer. And so the doc was like, okay, thanks very much. Um, and they all were, you know, kind and understanding. And so Kathy and I talked about it that night, what she wanted to do. Um, we had talked specifically about ovarian cancer before because my mom died of ovarian cancer. Oh, wow. She was diagnosed at 48 and died at 52. So um, we had talked about if I were ever diagnosed, if it were stage three or four, I wouldn't do chemo. So when this came up, we had already talked about this scenario, but more around me, not her. So she was clear she didn't want treatment. Um, she just wanted palliative care. So we knew that the, that first day. Um, and she reached out to someone from palliative care before she even called anyone in oncology. And uh, we knew she probably had about six months and she lived, I think, six months and three days. So, um, I mean, just, I, I sort of knew the story in the periphery because you and I had talked a little bit, yeah. but I didn't hear the whole thing. And just to hear that it's like, it's that's, a lot, that's a lot to take in. Um, it is. It w and it was really fast. So, um, it, yeah, it was very, very quick. I think the piece that made it easier for us in some ways was we didn't have a prolonged period of like, what is this thing? I wonder what this is. Like we were very clear yeah. um, from the outset. And actually it was after surgery. So she had surgery to debulk um, the tumor so that she would have more comfort. And it was only after the surgery that we found out the cancer was an even worse kind than we thought it was. So it wasn't just ovarian cancer, but it was clear cell ovarian cancer, which doesn't respond to treatment. So, um, so it's almost like you made that you knew before you, you yeah. knew before you knew that it was yeah. the right choice to make. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a super weird thing to go from life is normal. Everything is fine. And then go home to walk the dogs. And then my wife is dying. It was. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know how to. I don't even know how to feel about even hearing that story as your friend. It's like, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been in a partnered relationship, so I don't know what I would. I just don't know what my reaction would be, other than like, holy, like, wow. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things I love about kind of watching you go through that. Not that I enjoyed that you were going through, but I liked. I like. No, I know what you mean. I liked watching you were so direct about putting that on social media and putting her like what she was going through and you're mm -hmm. kind of taking care of her and what that was like for you. And so I think yeah. that really opened my eyes to like, Oh, this is more people need to see this. Like yeah. when I was watching those little clips, part of me was like, is there a documentary happening? Cause somebody, yeah. somebody should. Oh. You know, it's, um, it's interesting when she found out she was sick within a day or two, she and I had the conversation about how to handle it on social media, which was, Interesting. So prior to that point, Kathy's social media was very much just professional stuff. So she would tweet out stuff about hospice or stuff about palliative care. And she knew that I was a lot more open on social media. And she was always fine with that, but that was not her. She very much had like a wall between personal and professional. 
And um, we talked about, well, how are we going to talk about this with friends and family on Facebook, which is one group? And then how are we going to talk about it broader um, in terms of Twitter and Instagram to a lesser extent? Because I, I tweet about everything. So what would I not tweet about this? And so we started talking about it and Kathy was clear from a strategic standpoint, even though this is shitty luck, it's coincidentally good shitty luck because this is the work that we've both spent our professional lives doing. And so, um, you know, in hospice and palliative care, it's, it's not okay for people to be tweeting about the life story of one of their patients, but it is okay to be tweeting about your own life story. Um, yeah. And so it's a, you know, a rare, a rare occurrence that she really wanted to embrace and use to educate people. Was there, and this is not a question I wrote down, but one that I just thought of, was there a, a sense of like, you, you're both working in this field and like there's a you know you have a professional boundary yeah. that you put up and then all of a sudden like psh, there goes that boundary it's not there anymore so i think for her more so than for me because i've been doing lgbtq inclusive stuff forever and so as a lesbian who does that work all my work is always inherently personal um like all my work has always had that boundary between what is personally relevant to me as well as what's professionally my focus. For Kathy, she very much professionally did hospice and palliative care. Um, I, I think it was, it was more of a, a shift for her than it was for me. Um, but what was interesting to me was seeing her make that shift. I saw how much she enjoyed it. If, that, if that's, it's probably a weird word to use, but it was the first time that I saw her realize how much it can feel so nice to engage with total strangers on social media. Um, you know, that's not something that she'd really done much before. So that was kind of fun to watch her get some benefit out of the support from people. Building community. Through, exactly. Yeah. Like I think she tweeted me once and I was like, so pleased. Cause I was like, I know all about you. You don't know me, but I know your yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. I was so happy. Yeah, she was, and such a sweetheart. Like, she was really funny. She would work really hard on any, um, like, any of her tweets or any of her, like, GoFundMe posts. She would really, really put a lot of thought into them. Um, and it was, it was interesting watching her get more comfortable just being herself. Um, you know, professionally, she'd always presented her professional persona. And the Kathy that we saw on social media those last six months that was really the most real I think she ever was on social media. It was, and I remember watching it and I, cause I followed it very closely cause I yeah. kind of knew you and we had, been, I had been on your show at that point. So I was like, I want to, I need to follow this cause I want to support them both. And I'm just seeing that like you, your social media has always been a little bit funny. There's a little bit of a, yeah. a tongue in cheek there. Hers was not so much. No. So like when hers started to do that, I was just like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm seeing a change now. Yeah, she definitely, I think um, she hit that zero fucks given point where she was like, you know what, I'm dying and um, I just want to be real. I don't have energy to be anyone other than who I am. And so I'm just going to be me. And uh, that was nice to see. Like, I really, I enjoyed seeing that. The other thing that I think is closely correlated with her increased wittiness at the end of life on Twitter was she was using medical marijuana, <laughs> which, which made her um, 
hilarious, really funny. Um, and, you know, she even joked several times that she probably should have been using medical cannabis years earlier for anxiety um, because it definitely made her a lot more relaxed. It's um, pretty great. As somebody who <laughs> occasionally imbibes in medical marijuana to relax yeah. myself, it's pretty great. You know, it's funny. I have not imbibed um, since college, but I was in charge of all of the preparing of her marijuana, the purchasing of her marijuana, the preparing of it. I had a medical cannabis card in DC. I had to go through all the background check. And so I would go to the dispensary and uh, procure the marijuana. And then I was in charge of like decarboxylating it and making edibles. And um, it was, I treated it like a science experiment a little bit. I had a little journal where I'd write down, I put this in there and then I would have Kathy rate like how good the edible was and did it help with pain and, um, we ended up having some fun with it. Uh, and she was kind of hilarious. Um, the cannabis was, it was kind of funny. Um, I feel like there's a nursing book or pamphlet that could come out of that. Like, how do you make, how do you make edibles for your love? <laughs> you know, there, there is a book I'm looking at on my bookshelf called Cannabis Pharmacy. And there are a couple others. Um, there was a High Times cookbook. There were all of these things around actually making edibles and, um, understanding dosages and there's some good stuff out there. The one time I took edibles, I'll tell the story quickly. The one time I took edibles, I, my sex worker brought them over, said, just have a little bit. He didn't give them to me when we were pulling around. He just said, just, I'll put them in your freezer. Just have a little bit. I very naively had never taken an edible. So I thought they were a cookie. So I decided to have two at once. Oh no. Decided to have two edibles at one, like full edibles. Didn't understand that there was a time release thing with these. I took them both at once, like a cookie, like you would just a cookie. Oh no. And I remember I was watching that show, Sex Education. And I was, all of a sudden, I was like, okay, the room is floating. What's going on? And I was high for three days straight. Oh wow. Oh my God. So I don't know if I'll be doing edibles again, but. Kathy did not end up loving edibles mainly because dosing was so imprecise. Um, And so that was tricky. The only time she really loved having edibles was the one time that she had to get on an airplane when she was sick. So we wanted to go to, um, see Grayson compete in a film festival in Oklahoma. And she really wanted to go because he was a finalist. Um, but at that point, she was only using dexamethasone and, and marijuana to manage her pain. And so the only way to keep her pain under control was with marijuana. And I could not for the life of me figure out, because I'm a very law and order kind of girl. Like I don't drink alcohol. I don't do drugs. I'm like, I go the speed limit. So the idea of flying on an airplane with marijuana. With a high person. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do? So, um, so yeah, so she packed things in her carry bag, didn't try to hide it. Her idea was she would just be open about the fact and that- she would just tell uh, TSA that, yeah, yeah it is marijuana. And if they ask questions, so make no attempt to hide it. Um, but yeah, so when we were on the airplane, and I was so relieved once we were on the airplane, um, she was on one aisle seat, and I was across the aisle from her, and I saw her- reached into her bag and then she pulls out a brownie on the plane and I just about died. I was like, 
oh my God, no, you cannot be eating a brownie on the airplane. So by the time we got off the airplane, she was like knocked out. And I had to wheel her through the airport in a wheelchair while she napped. Um, it was, that was probably the most stressful uh, time of the whole time when she was sick, was flying, um, but it worked out okay. That makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. And Grayson ended up winning in two different categories at that film festival. So it was- It was worth uh, it then. It was worth it. And, you know, they called him up to give an acceptance speech and um, Kathy couldn't stop crying. My dad and his girlfriend came from Texas for the event. So it was really, it was nice. The whole family was there. Um, it was really, it was good. It was really, it was worth it. I want to ask you, you know, what was it like for you being, having to shift from being not only her wife, yeah. but being, turning into her primary caregiver, like turning into her like care person. Was that hard for you? Because so many people, when they think of their partner getting sick, we have this narrative in our culture where like, if my partner gets sick, you have two options. I stick it out. And then yeah. I become this sainted hero, right. or I leave them, and I'm the villain because I left the sick person. Yeah. So, did so you I know? was neither the sainted hero <laughs> nor the one who left. I continue. I I was her caregiver, but I still was very much me. So um, I mean, even when she was in the hospital, she was like, "Call and order me." I forget what it was she wanted. Like, can you call and order me some food? And I was like, you don't have hand cancer. Like, pick up the phone. You can order the room service. I'm not, no, no, I'm not doing all this. No, and so, I mean, that is, so I cont- I continued to be her wife and I was her caregiver. Um, so, and she, you know, as she could admit freely, she could be bratty um, and, like a little bit temper tantrumy as she got sicker, um, which is pretty normal. She's got the disinhibition from the marijuana, probably some brain involvement going on with the cancer. Um, and so, you know, she would be a little bratty and I would have to be able to laugh about it um, because that bratty person, that's the wife that I love. I've always loved that brattiness. So, you know, it wasn't the, oh, poor Kathy's dying of cancer. I must do everything she wants. I mean, sometimes she was obsessed with baked goods, like obsessed. You have to get the, you have to go get crumb cake. I need crumb cake today. I need pound cake. And I was like, take a breath. Like I cannot go out for pound cake one more time. So she was very- I also don't blame her in the least. If I was was dying, I would fucking want the bit. Exactly. I would want cheesecake. Exactly, exactly. So she wanted what she wanted, which was awesome. And I did all the best I could to like go get all those things. But sometimes like I would go and get pound cake and she'd be like, oh, you know what? This time I want a crumb cake. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll go back up. So we, so I never felt like I was the sainted caregiver at all. Um, she was easy to take care of in terms of, she always had such a great attitude about it. So no matter what was going on with her body, she understood it was just her body. It was not, you know, she wasn't. Kathy. Yeah. Kathy knew it was just her body and the body was the part that was weak, but Kathy was still okay. So um, we bought a house that had a shower big enough for me to get in there. Um, when her mom was dying, um, her mom very much didn't want a bath for like the last year of her life. And she would fight all the time with her home health aides about she did not want to bathe. And as Kathy got sicker, 
Kathy recognized she was turning to her mom because she was like, I don't want a bath. It's too much energy. And so we tried to figure out ways so that she could save her energy, but still get baths. Um, so did you, you had to get a house with a roll-in shower then or something? We had um, like a two inch lip on our shower and it's big enough that you can fit like four people in it. So I had yeah. a shower chair. Um, and until the last two weeks of her life, she was able to still get in there and I could give her a shower in there. Um, the last two weeks she couldn't get up anymore. And so I did all bed baths um, for the last two weeks which worked out fine. Um, at that point, she was like, I don't want to get in the, you know, she didn't want to get yeah, out of bed and she really couldn't. Um, but I think being her caregiver, I don't know. I never, it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like I shifted from being her wife to being her caregiver. I felt like it was just a different way of being her wife. See, I like that because like I said, most people, you know, a lot of people say to, say to me like, well, what if I have to, oh my God, what if I have to take care of you? Like, how would that change everything? Like, it's like, well, you can take care of me when, when we're naked and fucking around. And why right. can't you take care of me? It's like, a and, and there's nothing, you know, it's so interesting. There is nothing that the human body does when it's dying that is inherently grosser than any of the things our bodies do during sex. <laughs> I mean, really, if you think about it, like, there's nothing gross. Like, it's so I think that that's the piece maybe people are fearful of like, oh, well, I have to do something gross. And it's like, you're married. You do gross things all like, the time. You put, you put unprotected body parts in other, yeah. other, in other right. unprotected exactly. body parts. Yeah. So there's nothing inherently gross about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I never felt like I was a sainted caregiver. It, you know, if anything, you know, I would joke with Kathy that she probably should have had a better wife because I was very much like, oh, like, Yes, I know you're tired, but um, you know she could be she could be whiny anyway, like normal baseline whiny about stuff, and that didn't change when she was sick. Um, and I think had I been a different person, I would have started cutting her slack for the whininess. But the whininess had always been there. It was something I loved about her, which was she was just cranky about things, um, and so I didn't treat her any differently. I mean, the crankiness was part of what I loved about her. <laughs> Well, I think we just found the tag for this episode. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and how did, did you, so you never had the thought of like, you never were like, oh, she's sick. She's really sick. I, I should. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it broke my heart that she was sick and I never felt like I needed to treat her with pity or with sympathy or, I mean, and she had taken care of me before. So when I had a mastectomy, um, she helped me change the drains once, but she was generally really grossed out by anything medical, like super grossed out. Um, Which is ironic she, given the field she worked in. And so she wasn't a clinician. That, that's the interesting thing. So her, it's her education and experience was all in management, but she was not a nurse. Oh, so she was like the one that did all the scheduling. Yes. Yeah. So she never actually, she was doing strategic planning for hospices. She'd never actually been with a dying person. So when her mom was sick and her mom was getting sicker, um, you know, we had, her mom really wanted to go to Harry Potter world at Universal Studios um, for like, you know, a big hurrah of a trip in her last, last year of her life. And uh, Kathy really wanted to be able to make that wish come true. And so did my son and I. Um, but that meant that her mom who needed, you know, she basically needed help with breathing treatments, meds, bathing, positioning, everything. 
um, it meant that it would be it would be complicated to do that care. And Kathy was really clear there was no situation in which she would provide physical care to her mom. Never. Like she was just like, no, that's too private. And so um, I, I'm like, ah, that's fine. All it's of this book. makes sense now that she didn't want to be alive. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So she was just like intensely private about the human form. And so I would take care of her mom. So her mom had a home health aide um, who would be a 24 hour aide when she was in Florida. But when we took a trip, um, the aide didn't travel with her. And so I stayed in a room with Kathy's mom while Kathy and Grayson stayed in a different room. And I did all of Kathy's mom's care. And Kathy would always say, how do you do that? And I'm like, what? There's nothing weird about it. But her, to Kathy, the idea of providing physical care to someone, it was just horrifying to her. So it is a real blessing <laughs> that she died first because if I needed physical care, I'm pretty sure that this would not have worked out. Um, be, and it wasn't because of lack of compassion. She was just like, yeah, no, hard pass. I don't want to do that. So did her, did that soften as she got sick and like you started to have to take care of her? Did she like start to see like, hey? You know, interestingly, Yes and no. I mean, when she was in the hospital for surgery, she was abundantly clear. She did not ever want a nurse or anybody taking her to the bathroom, bathing her or providing any personal care whatsoever at all. She did not want anyone touching her. Wow, and that's so, such a, um, like, she was very, that, cool. that's so different from my life. Like, like if somebody has to take care of me, I just, okay, yeah, whatever. There's my junk, whatever, deal with it. Like, thanks, yeah, Wait. no problem. Yeah. So she was intensely private. So I stayed in the hospital room with her the whole time. And I did all of her care and took her back and forth to the bathroom and did that. She didn't want anyone like she was very private. So, um, wow. yeah. Again, explains why we're doing it after she passed. Right. <laughs> no, and she was super private. And so her mom was from New England as well. Um, in her mom's last year for life, Grayson and I and Kathy went down to Florida to visit her mom and her mom, you know, lived in a high rise um, down in Sarasota. And so the aide took Kathy's mom in a wheelchair down to the pool with Kathy, Grayson and I. And, um, and we were, you know, it was super hot out and Kathy's mom just wanted to sit in the wheelchair by the pool and watch us swim. And so I got in the pool and it was really hot out um, and there was no one at the pool and so I took my, sh my swim top off while I was under the water and I put it on the side of the pool and I swam back and forth. And then when I got out of the water, I put it back on. And uh, I said, and Aunt Anne was Kathy's mom's name, um, was asking, why did you take your shirt off? And I said, so it's so funny, but did you know that in the state of Florida, I can swim without a top because the law is that you can't show nipples. And when I had a mastectomy, um, I didn't have reconstruction. I don't have nipples. And so um, her mom had dementia. And so um, she thought this was fascinating. We all get in the elevator um, and we're, we're getting the elevator to go back up into her unit. And so the home health aides pushing the wheelchair, Kathy Gray and I are there and other people get on the elevator. And Anne turns to them and said, did you know my daughter-in-law just swam topless? She's allowed to because she doesn't have nipples. And I was like, Oh my God, I was mortified. I thought Kathy was going to spontaneously combust. Like, and we told that story for a good, for the year after it. I mean, Kathy was like, the, the fact that her mother said the word nipples 
in front of other people was like unheard of. So that's kind of how repressed her family was. That uh, is such <laughs> a funny story because my mom is much like you, very open, doesn't care. Yeah. Like, what a, has been taking care of me since I was little and like I'm 36 now and she'll she'll probably take care of me for years and years to come. So like, but, and we would have conversations like that where we'd be in the elevator of somewhere talking about something totally personal and people will be with us and be like yeah yeah whatever no big deal and so I just think it's cute that like that that happened yeah it's so funny and um, I think everyone has a different comfort level with just their body and also caregiving and for me uh, you know I don't have hang-ups around I mean I have the normal I would say normal spectrum of hang-ups that people have about you know I I you know I don't I wouldn't go to a nudist like colony or a nudist club because I think I'd be so, yeah, you know, like, but, but that's not because I inherently hate my body. I just think I'd be creeped out. I don't know why. And also I'd be obsessed. This is a side note. I've thought about this many times. I would be obsessed about when people have buffets, like when they go to the buffet, you know, and just, you know, when you go to a restaurant, there's like a sneeze guard for stuff. Yeah. But I just have this picture in my head of people naked at a buffet and it just grosses me out. Like I can't, I can't do it. And the sneeze guard so, will be level with like. Exactly. Like yeah. waist level sneeze guard or yeah. something. Um, so yeah. So, but other than that, other than my like phobia of nudist, um, going to a nudist buffet, I'm pretty open about things. There's so many possible titles for this, <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> I don't know. Um, now, one of the things that I'm the most excited to talk to you about, because now we're allowed to. Yes. Um, so, so now that Kathy's passed, what was the, in, what was the intimacy like for you and her, not only as her wife, but as like with a sick yeah. person? Was that so, different for you? Yeah. I mean, so the interesting thing about Kathy, um, and it was really not something that she talked about until the last few months of her life, that looking back in hindsight, had she grown up in a different era, she probably would have identified as both lesbian and asexual, which was really interesting to me. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting to me as her wife. So she, um, you know, I am a very sexual person, always have been. She was not, like just wasn't. Um, you know, always was really romantic, like to kiss and make out, but really not that into sex and said she never was her whole life. It just wasn't a big part of her life. Um, so what is interesting to me is as we, we were married a while, so you know after like 18 years, we definitely were more focused on physical intimacy rather than sex um, as a couple. And that worked for us. It worked really well for us. Um, which, you know, I think a lot of times people have an idea that couples, their sex lives look a certain way. Um, for us, I think our sex lives in some way, our intimacy was very much together, but our sex lives in many ways were separate, um, but still monogamous with each other. Uh, definitely more like masturbation side by side um, as sex, as opposed to having sex with each other the last few years. And, you know, looking back, I think some of that was Kathy was starting to not feel well. And I didn't really, we didn't know she was sick, um, but it worked for us. Like it was, it worked. Now, as she got sicker, um, ironically, I spent way more time looking at her genitalia when she was sick in the last six months than I had in like the year before, <laughs> because I was dealing with it every day. Like I was yeah. her, um, 
Um, but it was very much not sexual. Like it was intimate, but not sexual. Um, at one point she ended up with really, really horrible edema um, all throughout her groin. And um, she laughed because I, I teased her and I said her drag queen name would be Puffy Pudenda. And she ended up writing about it in one of her blog posts. Um, and so she got more comfortable. Like the, the fact that she even wrote the word Pudenda was like earth shattering um, because she was very much like, uh, her attitude about sex was like human beings are like Barbie and Ken dolls. Like you don't talk about any of the naked parts. The bits, yeah. Yeah, any of the bits. Um, so yeah, so I think she got more comfortable and as she got sicker, she definitely got more comfortable just with physical care and physical touch, but also recognizing um, that intimacy looks different, you know, as, as your body changes. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's such a, there's a view that in disability and illness that you can't have sex with a sick person. Because no, you can. You absolutely can. And so, like, so I'm guessing, given, given your life experience, I wouldn't suspect that that was an issue for you. But was that, was there a moment of like, oh, you're sick, we shouldn't, like? No, um, no, we actually talked about it the day she found out she was sick. And she was, she was funny about it. She said, I hope that this won't hurt your feelings. But now that I'm dying, I just don't want to have sex at all. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's fair enough. And so we talked about openly, like, and I, I wrote about this once. I really do think there are two kinds of people. There are people who, when they're dying, just meh, not so interested. And then there are people who are interested. Like, it may bring comfort to some people and not comfort to others. Um, I tease that in my uh, advanced directives, I have that my hospital bed needs to be within six feet of an outlet because <laughs> I wanna make sure my magic wand can be wherever I am. Um, and for Kathy, she was just like, no, nah, you know what, if you're, she's dying, she can just hang up that piece of her. Um, and it was okay. It wasn't a source of stress or discomfort with us. Um, you know, I, it was funny because I still continued to be a sexual person and masturbation was still a part of my life. It was net. She never masturbated from the time she got sick until she died. And I was like, wow. how is that? Like, how is that? If I were dying and this is my own stuff, if I were dying and I'm in the bed all the time, I'm probably going to spend a chunk of time masturbating. Yeah. A good long. Yeah. So would I. Right. So would I. Right. But she was like, life time is precious life is short and i'm like yes time is precious life is short and like you know orgasms are pain relievers so. right absolutely so i think some of it was um you know repression some of it was some old issues around childhood sexual abuse which you know she had worked really hard on um and we had worked really hard on together for her and when when she was dying i think she recognized you know, the, the safest and most comfortable thing for her was for our relationship to transition more into just intimacy. And that was okay. Um, it, it didn't feel weird. Um, and I was surprised at how comfortable she was with me doing care. Um, I was very, very surprised because she was never, she wasn't embarrassed about that. And she was fine with it. As long as it wasn't anyone but me, um, she was, she was okay with it. I mean, I think there's almost a sweetness there because I, I, understand how important it is to have somebody you trust yeah. in, your, in your care and I have people that I know in a professional context caring for me all the time but that doesn't necessarily mean I trust them it means that I'm letting you do right. it so like the fact that she let you oh yeah 
And she yeah. did fully trust me like to be able to, you know, transfer her to the shower and give her baths, um, to do any of her personal care. I mean, she trusted me. The only time that she struggled with something and it wasn't really about trusting me, it was more just trusting her body was the first time she had to put on diapers she was, her brain couldn't like get over that idea that you can't pee laying down. Um, and the only way I could get her to be comfortable was if I spent the day wearing a diaper, which was just like next level weirdness in my house. Cause I'm wearing a diaper and Kathy's wearing a diaper and then Gray's in the other room in the house working on one of his cl- summer classes. And um, please tell me that he also decided that it was, yeah, he did whatever. not end up wearing a diaper, but that would have really made for a fun day. Um, but that wasn't about Kathy not trusting me. It was more that she was really having trouble. Like her brain couldn't make that jump from you. It's not okay to pee laying down. Um, and we Again, ultimately ditched the diapers maybe two or three days in and ended up just going with pads underneath her, yeah. um, which was a lot easier. And I had those too. And so like I, those, pads are, awesome. those pads are a lifesaver. Like a lifesaver. They're amazing. And we have the kind that you wash. I still have them and we'll use them on the sofa if, if it's raining and the dogs jump on. We still have all of them. Oh, so um, she's still sort of there a little bit. With she like is, the- exactly. Protecting the sofa. I like so, yeah, so it's good. Um, yeah, so all those things, um, you know, there's nothing gross about any of the caregiving duties. There's, it's not gross. I need you to say that one more time really loud so everybody can listen and hear you because people forget this all the time. It, there's nothing gross about it. I mean, when we think about babies, so, and I'm, I do not want to make a, any analogy or metaphor, simile or whatever the word is between people with disabilities and babies because I don't want to, but stay with me here for a second. When babies are pooping their diaper or peeing or vomiting, people think it's cute. They wipe them up. They care for them. No one is judging the baby. No one is saying the baby is disgusting. The baby's body is doing what the baby's body does. And when someone has some kind of disability or illness and they can't control their bowel or their bladders, there's nothing gross about that. It's, it's, there's, it's not gross at all. It's, and we all pee and we all poop. And so there's nothing gross about it. So I'm pretty sure the 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 tag is going to be there's there's nothing gross about it, and there isn't anything gross about it. I mean, it's it's funny the number of people who said, "How are you doing her caregiving?" You know, I'm like, none of this is rocket science. Like, yeah, right. The number of people were like, "Well, don't you have help? Help for what? Like, she's in the bed. She's not going anywhere. It is hard. Like, cha- it's hard changing the bed and like positioning someone. Yeah, and but. I figured it out and it was okay. Um, and there wasn't anything gross. There wasn't anything gross about it. See, I like that. Like, I, th- I just think, I'm just really glad you said that because people need, to, I talk about it all the time yeah. from my standpoint, but people don't hear other people say like, hey, wiping someone's ass is not a whole thing. No, and, and it's not gross. I mean, I did it for her mom um, and I did it for Kathy. There was nothing gross about it. Um, if anything, I think it was one of the most intimate ways to care for someone. It's really, uh, it really is a form of love and respect. And like, if you, if so, I had somebody, and I've told this story before. I had a friend of mine. He's on, he's been on the show. His name is Jason. He's a friend of mine. And we went, we met last summer and I was, I had a huge crush on this guy. We didn't end up having sex. We just ended up becoming friends. And so, so I said to him, like, I need a shower. He goes, Oh, I'll help you. And he just decided to help me. And it was the most 
like you say, the most intimate thing that I've done with somebody. And it didn't involve, we didn't, had no sex. We didn't like yeah. none of that. We just had a shower together. And there was something really sweet about it that I, and so when people offer me help who, who, who may not have before, I'm like, you know what, I'm really, it's almost like, it's almost like having sex because you get all those, the same nerves and the yeah. discomfort and they're like, oh God what if they see this happening like but yeah. then it's like oh we did that together we're bonded now because you helped yeah. me do this well it's a selflessness too that if someone is taking care of another person and there's no expectation sexually they're doing it because they care and so it's an intimate act where there's no um there's no there's no payoff like, yeah i don't want to say there's no payoff cuz that's what i was exactly what i was thinking they're not doing it for themselves yeah that I think makes it loving yeah exactly and so like I I, you know uh, and you one of the things you did on your social media near the end of her life was you put it on you put videos and clips and when I watched that I felt connected to both you and her because I knew you a little bit and I was like I can't imagine first of all what she's going through emotionally she has to she has to be strong for her wife right now Mm -hmm. but also like I remember watching that thinking doing care is hard because not because it's hard, but the emotional side of caring for someone who's dying or caring for somebody who isn't dying. It's hard. There's emotional piece of like, I think the emotional piece is hard. And I think when people are dying, the tough thing is, and I've seen this with patients and I've seen it with, I saw it with Kathy. People think they're going to die way sooner than they're really going to die. So for Kathy, she thought she was going to die a month before she died because she couldn't fathom that she could feel shittier than she was feeling. So she went through a month where every week she was like, I'm going to be dead by Friday. I'm going to be dead by Friday, like over and over and over again. And so I think one of the tough things as a caregiver is seeing the decline of someone you love and not knowing how long that decline will last. Um, So you don't really know like with a baby, you know that they're going to grow up at a certain point. You have kind of a sense that you're not going to be doing this labor for forever. With someone who's dying, it's hard to gauge how long that's going to be. And I think that that's hard because you can't really reassure the person who's dying to say, it's just- Oh, you'll be okay by Friday. You'll be fine. Yeah. Right. Right. Or like, just hold on. It's just a couple more days and everything will be okay because you don't know how long it is. And I mean, again, I don't want to compare yeah. disabled people to dying people. And when I say this, I'm going to be very careful how I wear this. But I think there's a similarity in, you know, you were talking about how, you know, you, you, you know, with a with the non-disabled baby, when when they have markers, with a disabled baby or person, those markers right. change. And so, I kind of understood when I was a disabled toddler that this would be my life forever somebody would always be taking care of me this way. And so I think when you're dealing with a disabled person, you don't have a marker of when things will change. And right. So I think that can be hard for caregivers too. Yeah, no, I think so too. And what was interesting is, um, you know, because your podcast does focus on disability as well. Um, so Kathy and I raised a son together, Grayson, and he has um, Tourette's. And so growing up with someone who, and he also has some mild spasticity and dystonia, but his main thing is Tourette's and um, growing up with someone, you know, in the home and loving a child with a disability 
um, you don't know what those markers are. So when other people are hitting certain markers, those aren't necessarily the same markers for your child. That's and right. so, you know, part of the joy of parenting with Kathy was seeing how open she was to accepting Grayson for exactly who he is um, and not comparing him to like, oh, what other kids are doing. Um, and I think the, I think we need to find disability markers that are, that are, that are we need to we need we need to have milestones that are just for disabled kids like yeah. the day you get your new wheelchair or the day you you know the day your stutter doesn't bother you anymore or the day right. your Tourette's right. absolutely in that comfort I mean one of the things we saw as a real marker for Gray was um, when it didn't bother him if someone teased him because we tried really hard at home to help him understand that there are going to be people who aren't going to be kind. And so we wanted to make sure, you know, the goal is no one teases you, but also there are assholes in the world. And so for him to be able to laugh at someone who is trying to make him feel badly, once people didn't have the power to make him feel bad, that was a powerful moment. Um, oh, definitely, for sure. And, you know, in talking with him, I can sense that now. Like we talked very briefly, but I can sense that like he's very, he's, He's, He's an awesome in his, kid. Yeah. He's a really, really good kid. Um, and, and, you know, having, having Tourette's is different than, it, obviously every disability is different, um, but it is one of those disabilities that makes it hard for you to go unnoticed uh, if, you want, if you want to go unnoticed. So um, he had a tick his, must have been sophomore year, first semester of sophomore year um, in his speech class. Anytime the professor would call on someone to do an impromptu speech, Grayson, one of his tics was fuck this shit. And he would yell it really loudly. Um, and he didn't even tell me about it when it was going on. I, I found it at the end of the semester. Um, but the professor basically said, I know you can't control it, but could you try to do it quieter? And so, but Grayson was so unbothered by it. He never called and told me about it. He wasn't upset about it. He was just like, eh. the professor wanted me to like ratchet down the volume a little. I was like, That's fair enough. <laughs> That's fair. So yeah, he's he's pretty awesome. That's he's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, did any of Kathy's illness reframe your views on disability and illness? Did, did you confront any of your own ableism throughout the process of doing care with her oh, yeah. and get sick and do all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing it opened my eyes too, which is probably not, I think open my eyes is probably an ableist phrase. I'm not sure. It probably is. Probably. But, that's okay. <laughs> but I'm learning, like I'm, I'm learning as I go. So and this is what I think is like, so the thing you just said there, and I want to just yeah. button it because I really liked it. I think, see, you're learning. And I think the learning process of unlearning ableism is ongoing and it's forever and we yes. all get to do it. So Thank you for learning. Oh, you're welcome. Like, no, I mean, I, I make mistakes and I try to own them as, as publicly as I can. Um, and so do I. So, yeah, because yeah. I'm learning as I go. Um, but one thing her illness made me realize was how inaccessible everything is. And I know this probably does not in any way sound like any huge insight to you because you've used a wheelchair. Um, but pushing her around in a wheelchair, I was like, what the fuck is up with everyone having stairs? Like there's <laughs> stairs everywhere. everywhere. I love it when people realize that. I love it when people that you're with all of a sudden realize that the stairs are everywhere. And you as a wheelchair user are going, uh-huh. Yeah, because you've known this forever. But I'm like, what is up with this? 
or doors that are way too narrow or, or doors that like when you push the button instead of going inward they come outward and you're like well that doesn't how am I supposed to oh no it's awful it's absolutely awful so that was it made me see physical the physical environment differently really really differently um and made me a little irritated that spaces are not more accessible. So that is something that um, I realized. And then I think also in terms of my own ableist ideas, I think when Kathy stopped being able to walk, I definitely felt this sense of um, feeling like worried that her life wouldn't be as fulfilling, if that makes sense. Like I started realizing I was projecting onto her this idea that if she couldn't walk anymore, that that would somehow be awful. Um, and it wasn't awful, you know, she was okay. But I, that was definitely an ableist kind of idea. Like I, I tie mobility in my head to health. And um, yeah. So you know, I we, we all do though, like I do it too. Like, and I'm a disabled person, but it's so, that just shows you again how ingrained these things are. We don't even realize it. So like, yeah, it's not surprising you would. I would almost say, of course you would. Of course you would, because what? But I think yeah. it's important to, to acknowledge it, like, and to think about, um, just to recognize it, because it's something that I realized I put too much. I put too much emphasis on the value of being able to be up and around. And um, she loved being able to go around in her wheelchair. Like she enjoyed it. She liked it. Um, I did realize that wheelchairs are really badly designed for like manual, yeah. like the cup holders flop over, like the, um, you know, they're- well, I mean, And they're not designed, they're only designed for individuals, it seems, who have spinal cord injury, which is great. And I said, that's amazing. And like, but they, 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 from what I've seen, and I'm a power chair user, so I can't yeah. speak from my own experience, but- the ones that I've been put in as a disabled person, they have no support. They're really flimsy. They just like, if you don't have any yeah. trunk control, you will fall out. Why don't we have more manual chairs that are fit yeah. to a complexly disabled person? Yeah, no, I agree. Cause they're definitely um, floppy. You know, I got all these gel cushions and all these armrests and, um, and tried to make it more comfortable. But that was, that was definitely something I, I realized was there, there aren't good options out there. No, there really aren't. There need to be more. So wheelchair manufacturers who are listening, um, hire me. I'll help. You would, you would do a great job of giving input in terms of how to structure chairs in ways that are um, helpful. And I don't know if this is already out there. Maybe it is. Are there wheelchairs that are specific for sacks to help with positioning? There are not. There should be. (laughs) There are not sex wheelchairs. As far as I know. Why are there um, sex wheelchairs? <laughs> Again, another tag for the, I don't know what this Well, no, I mean, think about it though. Like, wouldn't it be helpful? It would be super helpful. I mean, maybe I'll talk to my sister and when we do our sex toy brand and we'll come up with a sex wheelchair. I think you need to invent a sex wheelchair, Andrew. This is, this is your life's mission. You didn't even know it until right now. I didn't even know it until right this very second. Um, I also want to ask you, were there any particular moments when you took care of Kathy? And you've kind of alluded to a lot of them, but were there any, any moments when you took care of her as she was becoming more disabled and more sick um, that made you smile like because of her illness? Yeah, there were a lot. So as she got 
a lot sicker. So in the last, say, three weeks of her life, um, the combination of the medical marijuana, the probably some liver involvement that was causing some confusion, um, maybe some brain involvement, she just started saying the funniest things and, um, and was confused, but in a really pleasant way. So she became really concerned about my husband. She wanted to make sure that I, that my husband had a good job with the federal government. She was very worried, wanted to make sure I'd be well taken and care of. About your husband. Okay. About my husband. Um, and I think for me, so I've been around people with confusion before. And so the way I deal with it is to just go with wherever they're at. So I reassured her that my husband has a good job with the government and she was fine. Um, because telling her, I don't have a husband, I'm married to you, would just have made her more upset. It would scare her, brother. Yeah, yeah. it would scare her. So I just tried to meet her where she was. Um, yeah, she was really funny. Um, she was always really funny, but as she was dying, she was really funny. Um, and yeah, so... She said a lot of funny things. They were all kind of funny. What was the, we talked kind of earlier about the harder part, like the easiest and hard parts of care. What was the hardest part of care for you as a caregiver? Like what was the, was there a day when you were like, oh, fuck it, I don't want to die. Don't yes, wanna... yes, most definitely. So the last, the day before she died, she um, kept saying she couldn't pee. And so for like 24 hours, she would try to get up but she couldn't physically get up. So she would try to get out of bed and she would say, I have to pee. And then I would say, honey, remember your legs don't work. And she would go, okay, I remember. And then she'd go, I have to pee. And this repeated for like 24 hours. And I remember going, oh my God, I'm so tired, but I don't want her like flying out of the bed and trying to go to the yeah. bathroom. Um, that was hard because I, because she was upset. She couldn't get up and go to the bathroom. Um, and I couldn't really reassure her. So that, that was probably the only hard day um, was that. But otherwise, it was okay. I was just tired. I was just really tired. Yeah. Uh, but no, I would say that's probably the hardest day. And maybe about a week before that, it hit me that I didn't um, have any way to have someone declare her death when she died. So I got a little panicked. I got on Twitter and was trying to figure out a solution around it. And ultimately her palliative care doc um, agreed to come pronounce Kathy's death when the time came. Because otherwise in the U.S., if you have an unattended death in most states, you have to call 911 and then the medical examiner, coroner, you have to come an autopsy. Um, and I, you know, I didn't want it to feel like an emergency. Yeah because it wasn't, it was very much of an expected death. And I didn't want Grayson having that trauma of lights and sirens. And, and like the, the paramedics coming in and doing all the yeah. yeah. And I also, to be fair, Kathy and I had talked a little bit about this previously, which we had never talked about who would pronounce her death. We talked more just broadly about, um, she was happy that I wouldn't ever be calling 911. We hadn't really flowed through all the details. Um, because she also thought, okay, if someone did an autopsy, she she's using marijuana, and we don't we we moved to a state where that wasn't legal. Oh no! I know. And I had said, you know what? Of the hills, I'm willing to die on. Having you die comfortably, I'm willing to die on that hill. Yeah. Like I'm okay. Um, but yeah, 
because uh, Virginia was not uh, medical cannabis. The kind that she was using was not legal when we moved. I never even thought of that. And now I'm like, oh, yeah. I've, like, oh, mean- yeah. No, the legality of medical cannabis, I mean, for the move between D.C. to Virginia, that was a big thing we talked about was, um, you know, would we have enough cannabis to be able to last her the rest of her life? Because that was what she used for pain. Um, that was like the big worry was it because you're also not allowed to take cannabis across state lines. Yeah. So um, it was, you know, I'm very much of a law abiding person and that made me very nervous, but I also knew, you know, we were very responsible. We kept everything in a lockbox, um, destroyed everything when she died, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was a risk worth taking. I would have kept one edible. <laughs> You know, I am super straight laced. I I don't even think when I'm retired, I would use drugs. I, I very much like just being, having kind of a sober outlook on the world. Yeah, so do I. With my disabilities, if I, when I took that edible and I, when I was out of it, I, I was there, but I was not really there. You were not. <laughs> and it so. on your butt. It was super uncomfortable because I was like, I can't take care of myself right now. Like I yeah. can, but I can't leave my house because I know I'm high. So I can, I'm with you and like, I don't. I'm, I'm too much of a control freak, I think. Yeah, I'm the same difference. way. I need like, to be yeah. 100% like, in control or I can't do it. Um, what advice do you think, Kim, you would give to any non-disabled partner who has a lover who gets sick or who yeah. becomes disabled? I think my advice would be to recognize that the person that you love is inside that body. They are not their body. And so, um, you know, the body changes over time, whether it's with disability or death, um, people's bodies change, but the person they are inside is still the same person. And so recognize that if their body's doing different things or it can't do things it used to be able to, uh, the person you love didn't change. It's just, kind of the envelope that's carrying that letter that changed, but the letter inside is still the same. Oh, I like that. Thanks. Sweet. This is very sweet. Um, And this is a totally different question because you are are a professor at the University University of Virginia School of Nursing. Do you think that nursing students are taught enough about ableism in the field of nursing? And if not, how do we change that? It's a really great question. I would say based on my experience at both George Washington University and University of Virginia, that there's a lot that we can do more to teach nurses about this um, in school. And ableism, racism, those two things, I think, get far too little content in the nursing curriculum. Um, Partly because, and this is just, my lived experience, it's not everybody's experience, but my experience is that people, well-meaning people, try to build modules or like do, you know, a case here, a case there, but instead of integrating things about ability and disability into everything, it becomes a standalone, which then changes how people see um, issues. So, you know, instead of, and I see this with LGBTQ content also, it's so much harder for a school to integrate content in every single module around disability and racism and sexism and homophobia than it is to just do a standalone two hour thing. Yeah. Um, 
So I'd love to see more curriculum um, in schools of nursing. If, from what I've seen at UVA, there's a real openness and an interest to increasing curricular content around inclusion. So I think that's a good thing, but there's a lot more we can do. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would agree with you. There's, and I think the majority of nursing students and nurses that I've worked with and met, they don't, they're not trying to be malicious. They just don't know. They just don't know. And, and I think that, that, you know, the idea of, you know, understanding some of the basic etiquette even of interacting with people, you know, we, there's a lot of emphasis on teaching folks cultural competence, which I hate the phrase cultural competence, but that general idea. Yeah. Um, but people with disabilities, that, that is a culture, even if people don't identify as being part of a culture. And so people need to learn some cultural competence around how to, how to interact with people with disabilities, talking about respecting their body, respecting their space, not touching their chair, you know, recognizing you wouldn't walk up to someone and rub their arm. You also wouldn't rub their chair without permission. You wouldn't pat somebody in the head just because right. you wouldn't do that. Right, exactly. Um, and understanding, you know, some basic etiquette kind of things about talking to someone, being on the same physical level to have a conversation. I think nurses, most nurses learn this in nursing school, which is you don't loom over a patient when you're having a conversation if the patient's in bed. But we don't really talk that much about if someone's in a wheelchair and how nice it is if you can actually get down and be able to have an eye-to-eye -eye conversation. I think that for me, like I agree with you, but I think also that's a, that's a tough one because in the middle of your conversation, do you, I don't know if I want the person bending down to talk to me as we're no, no, but it, like if they could pull up a chair though. So let's say someone's having a conversation. Yeah, yeah. If, I'm not saying that they should like squat down on the ground, but like if there's an opportunity to have a chair and be able to pull up a chair to be in conversation instead yeah, of yeah. standing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying they should like get down on all fours. Well, because I've seen nurses, when I was in the hospital recently, I saw a nurse like squat to my eye level and I was like, I didn't call them on it because I was like, you're nice and you're trying, so I'm not going to say anything. But, but it probably felt weird. It's weird. It did feel weird. Yeah. Well, I imagine it might feel, I don't know, I can't say I know how it feels, but here's how I imagine in my, in my non-disabled head that's thinking maybe this is how you might see it, and I could be wrong. It would feel to me like someone squatting down like I'm a child. Yeah, that's it. That is how it feels. And so I like the idea of having a chair in the room when the nurse or the doctor is talking to you, yeah. and they, they can already either be seated in the chair yeah. before you start your conversation or... Or, you know, part of me is like, just, just stand up because you can stand up and I can't stand up. So just right. stand. Like, it's okay. And so I've reached this weird place of like, don't make any, I know what you're trying to do, but it's okay if you stand up because like- You've reached the point where you're like, just don't make it weird. <laughs> yeah, basically, pretty much. Don't make it, like, it's, I think I've reached this point in my journey of disability where like, I don't want you to try too hard to like, I don't want you to try- so hard to find the inclusion that you and I both look silly as you try to do that. Yeah. Like just that makes sense. Yourself. That makes sense. Um, I this is I am done the questions that I have for you. This was fun. It, it, this was so great. Um, I want to talk to you off the air because yeah, yeah. we can talk for like ever and ever again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how can people get a hold of you? How can they follow your work? How yeah, they... absolutely. So on Twitter, I am at Kim Aquaviva. K-I-M-A-C-Q-U-A-V-I-V-A. -A -A. Um, 
and I really don't do much on Instagram. I'm really disappointing on Instagram, but that's it's Twitter. It's a hard medium unless you're taking a bunch of pictures all the time. It's really hard. Again, I don't really have much to take pictures of. Maybe it's because I'm social distancing. Like I can only take so many pictures of the inside of my house and my dogs before people are like, what is wrong with you? Um, so Twitter's the easiest place to, to find me. And uh, I try to respond to everyone who messages me or DMs me. So that's probably the easiest way to reach me. Cool. I'll make sure that I'll make sure that all of your socials are uh, on in the show notes. This was I had some. It was so nice to sit down and talk with you for this. It was so fun. Extended chat like this, and this is going to go out. Um, and this is being recorded. I don't care. This this will go out on this coming this next episode. This will be the one on Thursday. I'm excited. I'm so glad we did this. It's so much fun, and it's fun being on this side of the interviewing process. Yeah, you can just relax though. Yeah, this was fun. All right. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark today. Thanks so much. And you and I will talk in five seconds when I hit off. Awesome. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Andrew. All right, friends. This has been another edition of Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. I'm, of course, your number one career cripple and your disabled Dick Smith host, Andrew Gerza. If you like what you heard today and you want to follow my work and find out more about what I do, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast directly, you can head over to Twitter and punch in DisAftDarkPod and follow us there. If you want to contact the show with a show idea, a guest idea, a comment, or a complaint, you can head over to your email and email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to this latest edition of Disability After Dark, and we'll be here to shine a bright light on more things really soon. Thanks, everybody. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Music was by Music by Space Robot Scientists. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Notice 2020